First of all, I do want to thank the Center for Ethics and Henry for, in particular for inviting me to be a part of their Ethics and Protest series. I've enjoyed uh, many of the talks in this series and I'm honored to be in this space right now, or virtual space, I really should say. And uh, giving a talk over Zoom is a very different thing than an in-person talk and brings with it its own challenges. And in many ways, it's very fitting that I'm giving this talk in this virtual space as the subject of my talk takes on this very idea that virtual spaces and the speech acts they enable and constrain are very different than their in-person or IRL in real life, as I'll say, counterparts. This takes some very interesting turns. Uh, I think this is true of many of our communicative practices. And in my work, I tend to focus on the bad ones. That is hate speech, harassment, propaganda, stuff like that. Um, and how these occur online is, in my opinion, not simply or not only a high-tech version of what occurs offline. So my work addresses the features of online speech and how these impact our lives in novel, distinct, and often troubling ways. For example, something like how the experience of online harassment can be somewhat paradoxically more visceral than offline harassment. Even though I tend to focus on the harmful uses of online platforms and network communications uh, that have obviously exploded in recent years, it's also worth noting that it's not all bad. That is, we can't, we shouldn't, we mustn't simply count the bad and ignore the good. There are many clear benefits brought about by online speech, such as the fact that I can do this talk right now, even though we are living through an ongoing pandemic. In any case, total pessimism over the topic is uncalled for. And it'd be just as foolish, I should say, to uh, dismiss only talk about the good and ignore the bad, which is perhaps something that many tech CEOs, for better or for worse, and other techno-optimists do. Both of these errors, focusing exclusively on the negative or focusing exclusively on the positives, produce a distorted understanding of our evolving world, one that we're still struggling to get a grasp of. We really gotta take it all at once. So it's with an eye to considering both the good and the bad of online speech, the benefits and the harms made possible by things like social media and related technologies, that I'm gonna discuss uh, online protest here today. So protest, to speak in very broad terms, is something that I take to be a very good thing. And the capacity to protest is an, an important element of democratic life, and online platforms have undoubtedly shaped this capacity as they continue to grow. But the particular ways that this political speech act, and that's in part what I consider uh, protest to be, uh, the particular ways that this speech act has been shaped is still in flux, not least because of the pandemic that has accelerated the use of online communications and in some cases hastened the replacement of their offline counterparts. So I wanna know upfront that this is a very much some work in progress. So while I've had a sustained interest in harmful speech, both online and off for a while now, as well as a general interest in protests, both from a philosophical perspective and as the occasional practitioner, I've only recently really started thinking about, uh, seriously at least, about online protest and the questions that it raises. So I thank you all for bearing with me as I, as I work through some early ideas in part to see where this all leads. Because what I want to do is I want to consider how uh, IRL and online protests are different and what that means. The more specific questions I want to put in front of you today concern what I'm calling the challenges of online protest. And what I mean this in two ways. And that's because philosophical titles work best when they have a, a bit of a wink going on. Um, the 
The first sense in which I mean the challenges of online protests concern what makes online protests difficult. Why it is that on the one hand, it's so much easier to engage in online protest in contrast to something like street protest. But on the other hand, its uh, ability to enact change is sometimes uh, not so clear. We can likely point to many examples of powerful and visible protest movements that have significant presence, presence online, but whose ability to translate that into that visibility into real world change like policy is perhaps sometimes more muted. Quick caveat, I should clarify right away that this is not meant as a criticism of online protests and the organizers behind these movements. Enacting change is hard and never guaranteed no matter what path you take. So my aim here is not to dump on the folks doing what they can. And sometimes it's worth noting that online protest does affect real change, clearly. So I'm speaking very, somewhat generally, but I do believe that there are interesting reasons why the apparent power of online protest movements and its actual power can come apart. And understanding these reasons helps to clarify the second sense, in which I think that there's a challenge of online protest. So the second sense concerns uh, how online protest itself serves as a bit of a challenge for our understanding of what protest is and what it can be. Again, I believe the past two plus years has forced us to reconceptualize many of our prior practices in deep ways. And um, you know, questions around the purposes of school, work, social life, they were all thrust upon us. And my thoughts at least around protest and the pro purposes it serves online and off have been shaken. Uh, as many of our aspects, many aspects of our life have migrated online, whether temporarily or permanently, remains to be seen, the capacity for political protest to serve the function that it sometimes does online rather than physical spaces seems to me an open question without clear answers. So after considering the challenges as in difficulties of online protests, I want to consider whether a kind of rethinking is order, just pose that as a question. I want to consider how the distinct mechanisms of online speech pull against our normal understanding of protest and its rootedness in identifiable speakers who's making their voices heard in public, sometimes at significant cost to themselves. Well, where this leads, I think, is sort of unclear. You can seriously ask whether protest, online protest is really something like protest, or is it protest 2.0 or something else entirely? So the plan. Uh, next, I'm going to offer uh, an analysis of the speech act of protest in terms of its pragmatic features and argue that looking here instead of to the content of the utterances of protest reveals very important aspects of protest and protest movements. Then I'll explore how the features of online speech, like its algorithmic mediation, the anonymity and pseudonymity that goes on there, these all make it importantly different than IRL speech. And again, I think it's gonna be fairly familiar, but worth making explicit as these uh, play into the topic fairly clearly. And then finally, I'll consider what all this means for protests, asking what challenges social movements newly face as they organize and act online, as well as uh, the sort of challenges that this puts to our understanding of protest itself. Okay, uh, theorizing protests. In previous work, I argued that it's the distinct pragmatic features of protests, namely its entitlement conditions and the uptake it aims at, that reveal or best reveal its moral, political, and epistemic significance and role. In short, we should understand protests, I think, as paradig paradigmatically socially located speech that functions to sort of reveal the moral authority of the protester. And the contrast I wanna make here is between the view that I'm putting forward where features like speaker and context are primary and between a view where the content takes center stage. One route to this kind of alternative view would be to understand protests as a type of propaganda. 
And there are, of course, many competing definitions of propaganda, and what I say isn't incompatible with all of them. But I do take my view to clash, and this is what I did in the other paper, to clash with the view advocated with uh, Jason Stanley in his How Propaganda Works, and in particular, his analysis of protest as a type of what he calls positive propaganda. I won't go into too many of the details, but in short, Stanley, Stanley sees propaganda, what he calls civil rhetoric, uh, at the same time, positive propaganda rather, as the sort of structural opposite of demagoguery, this negative propaganda. And what he means by this is that they serve opposing functions. One increases reasonableness in a political community and the other decreases it. Uh, so far, so good in some ways. However, um, while Stanley talks about propaganda, defines it mainly in terms of its effects, he offers a model which uh, he elaborates and endorses that really focuses on the content, the expressed content of utterances, and in particular, their hidden presuppositions that they can smuggle in in order to support what he calls flawed ideologies. So on Stanley's model, utterances contribute new propositional content to be shared in the conversational background, what we call the common ground. And crucially, these utterances can do so covertly and indirectly. And this can happen through the kind of careful use of presupposed or not at issue contests, content, sort of a sneaky way of having your message reach out. And it's this approach to propaganda that I believe is fairly unhelpful to take to social movement protest. Um, and this is the case, even for examples like, which I take in the other paper, the example of Black Lives Matter, where the slogan really is, and the slogan is a linguistic act, it does seem to capture so much attention, both positive and negative, and it is kind of subject to these competing interpretations. But in my view, focusing so much on the meaning of the slogan, even one as undeniably powerful as Black Lives Matter, that can in fact serve to cede some ground to detractors, the Oak Group. And Maisha Cherry in her chapter in that uh, anthology I'm part of, Maisha Cherry, of course, was a of this uh, series earlier, um, makes a sort of similar point that it kind of focuses on the outgroup rather than the in-group in certain ways. And it, what it also does, in my view, is it makes it become an argument, Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. And putting these um, two claims alongside each other in this way does a disservice in that it uh, kind of forces a distract distraction, in my opinion, from the other important aspects of protest that I'll focus on. Because the focus on content and meaning leads us to evaluate these claims separately from the context that produced them, at least it can. Um, someone like uh, Elliot Kala, which is a historian, uh, talks about, he talks about the use of protest slogans in the Egyptian Revolution. He says that the context of performance demands that we consider slogans, not just in terms of their semantic meaning or as a discursive genre, but as embodied actions taking place in particular situations. I very much agree. However, I think Stanley's model encourages the sort of abstraction that tends to push our analysis in the opposing direction. Namely, it pre presents these protests as though they are kind of moves in a debate, as if they and the counter speech that they generate are just competing claims that can be evaluated uh, in the same way. And that again is, I believe, the wrong approach to take, and it's better to kind of put protest in its context and see it as uh, a demand. And one avenue I came to appreciate this comes from uh, Bernard Boxel, who says that typically people protest when the time for argument and persuasion is past. They insist, as Du Bois puts it, that the claim they protest is an outrageous falsehood, and that it would be demeaning to argue and conjole for what is so plain. Respond to a newspaper article that claimed, quote, the Negro was not a man, 
Frederick Douglass disdainfully declared, I cannot, however, argue, I must assert. And this assertion is kind of like a demand, I believe. So in other words, treating Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter as claims competing in a debate obscures some of the central features that are inherent in protest, namely that protest involves a sort of moral demand. And it's a demand, moreover, that asserts the protesters' entitlement to make this demand, that is their moral authority. As I see it, uh, this is a difference in terms of the pragmatic features of the speech act. That's how I kind of analyze it. These are obscured when we focus merely on the propositional content being expressed. What I mean by this is that we should take seriously the idea that protest is a type of speech act. And when we do this, we're led to ask questions like, what does it do and how does it do it? And like other speech acts, you know, for example, invitations, promises, stuff like that, protest both aims at a certain response and uptake from those it addresses and in particular certain addressees and relies upon certain entitlement conditions on the speaker's behalf in order to perform this act felicitously or happily as Austin would say. You know, for example, I can't offer to sell you something that isn't mine. That's uh, wrapped up in the entitlement conditions of trying to offer the offer. But uh, you don't want to go too deep into those weeds. But in any case, what I aim to put forward is that we ought to understand this function of protest. And uh, to do so, we need to look closer kind of uh, the context in which it, um, it occurs. In particular, who is making the calls? Who are they aiming a response from? And uh, in general, what they are putting in front in order to kind of make that demand have some authority behind it. So um, as I see it, protest is not mere testimony, but in fact, a type of demand. And focusing too closely on content leads us to mischaracterize protested argument rather than as a sort of platform. It's a platform, moreover, that foregrounds what I call the moral authority of protesters. And this kind of comes out similarly from uh, something that Elizabeth Anderson, the political philosopher Elizabeth Anderson says about uh, the kind of three things that she highlights that successful social movements tend to do. Um, one, they inform the powerful of the needs and interests of the less powerful. Uh, two, they express what is required to, um, the, sorry, they request, express these as demands or claims on the powerful, they have that audience. And three, they enable the less powerful to display their worthiness so that they can assume this sort of moral authority um, that contests the, the counter authority of the powerful. They put some own authority behind their claims, in other words. Um, sorry, that slide's a little obscured. These features are all, in my opinion, informed by elements like who the speaker is, who the audience is, the context in which it's embedded, et cetera. And more importantly, they just cannot be captured in sort of the impersonal propositional terms. They are part of the concrete social context in which social movement protest exists, and they inform what the act they're performing is. Uh, this again is coming out of someone from like Elizabeth Anderson who says in a different paper that a claim of justice is essentially expressible as a demand that a person makes on another agent whom that speaker holds accountable. That is in other words, the second personal utterance that is directed at and calls upon another person, a second person, a you, to give it a specific type of update. And that again is slightly different than um, merely expressing a content. It's the second personal nature of moral claim making that forces us to recognize that protests uh, and the demands in which they're part of are 
different and distinct from kind of arguments, moral arguments, which are indifferent to these each features like speaker, protest, or sorry, audience context, and so on. Um, at, at focusing on this context reveals that it's partly the invocation of the status of the per person making demand that plays a big role in informing what kind of demand that is. So their status and their position, it comes into light and plays a big role in, uh, in the act of protest. One does not merely express dissatisfaction with the status quo, but rather they position it, position it as a complaint that originates from a specific social location. The issue, these second personal clause calls with these distinct entitlements. That is what I say, they put that distinct authority behind their claims. You know, a really quick, great example of this is something like reclamation projects, which are very vivid. It's uh, in saying we're here, we're queer, we used to kind of like that, that only really works when the we is a specific uh, members of a specific community really kind of cannot be separated from that context. And putting these things in context, we then note that it's the act of protest um, is more about <coughs> sorry, communicating uh, mere ideas. As Anderson says, they function instead to reject the authority and unjust norms of the dominant and in their place uh, foreground the authority of the protesters themselves. That is, uh, this act, when performed by oppressed persons, is a direct threat to the unjust hierarchy. And this is in some ways kind of distinct from the specific contents that they're expressing. It really is just kind of in the act of protesting itself, regardless of the sort of uh, words being uttered. Something similar comes out of, uh, again, another little long quote, uh, Judith Butler, who puts it, before we ask what it means to speak truth to power, we have to ask who can speak. And sometimes the very presence of those who are supposed to remain mute in public discourse breaks through that structure. Dot, dot, dot. Of course, they make specific demands, but assembly is also a way of making a demand with the body, corporal claim to public space and a public demand to political power. This is a kind of just again, emphasizing my uh, approach to protest here. And to wrap up this section, and just kind of the general ideas I want to put in front of you about what act protest is. <laughs> I take protest to be socially located speech that both relies on and reveals the authority of those doing the protesting. That is, it functions to foreground the moral authority of those engaging in protest, and it does so in a way that challenges the unjust authority of the powerful. Sorry about that. Uh, in an important way, as I've been saying, this all comes about through many of its IRL in real life features. It's publicness, it's embodiedness, the plurality of speakers coming together. These all matter for the type of act that protest is. <laughs> and with that in mind, I'm gonna next turn to uh, online speech and consider uh, what is online speech and how that challenges this very idea. Because of course, many of those features are gonna fall from view. So just to state the obvious, uh, online speech is different than offline speech. Using words like IRL in real life, meet space, cyberspace, these all aim to make plain, but I think we all kind of know in a moment's reflection that what occurs online and through these screens is at least different and distinct than what occurs outside of those parameters. To be clear, this is not to claim though that uh, Twitter isn't real life or anything like that. Uh, my position really is that what we do online is just as real and significant as our offline actions but that we must appreciate these differences that each medium presents. So for starters, unlike standard 
in-person speech. Online speech is mediated by these big infrastructures that is, of course, obvious and hidden from view. Things like you know, servers, modems, underw underwater cables, stuff like that. This infrastructure plays a pretty big role in determining who is even able to perform online speech. And while that grows every year, it still is not everyone in the world. There's also the fact that uh, platforms that host the bulk of our online speech, your Facebooks, your Googles, your Twitters, your TikToks, they make decisions, business decisions, that shape the contours of what online speech is possible. You know, perhaps the most important here is the invisible and opaque algorithms that amplify and moderate content on each platform. And I'll return to these again below. But even more mundane aspects and features like default settings around public and private profiles, message length, image capabilities, whether you can put live video together, limits on forwarding replies, which is a big deal with like WhatsApp and whatnot. These are all very important features that have concrete impacts on what speech acts are possible online. And you know, another caveat here is to say that uh, the internet is a very big place. Different platforms offer different affordances, and you know, there's no general universal truth of what's going on there in terms of internet speech. But it's with a dose of humility that I do want to kind of dig into what I think are some uh, distinguishing features. So one is that a lot of online speech is slightly differently embodied or less embodied than offline speech. Our texts and tweets, these are things that occur within a small screen and that we interact with them mainly uh, with our thumbs and fingers. And this is, again, like the infrastructure point, both banal and significant. It does impact how we interpret the words of others, what words we put out there, what acts we're able to do with our words. Additionally, perhaps significantly, uh, a lot of online speech is asynchronous to a certain degree. And this sits along a spectrum with some formats on one end, others on another. But it's worth noting that entirely different norms do take hold when we cannot rely on immediate feedback in our conversations. So things like read receipts and timestamps and others that occur online, they can have an impact on our norm-governed practices of uh, conversations, as do other features of offline speech. And you know, there's also asynchronous offline speech like letter writing and whatnot. And again, just worth putting these uh, points in front of you to kind of remind you of what um, the differences in each, in each realm make plain. And another feature here would be the anonymity and pseudonymity. Uh, that's an often cited distinguishing feature of online speech or online speech capacities. Again, this sits along a spectrum, probably well with multiple axes. So while we can sometimes be kind of anonymous to other participants on a forum, that doesn't always imply that we're anonymous to the site's servers, the hosts, um, the government under which we operate stuff like that. Anonymity does come in degrees, but it is something that, again, shapes the words we're able to make, the, the speech acts we're able to perform, and that anonymity, anonymity can be fairly powerful in some contexts. Uh, moving on, I do want to talk about also the ambiguous state of the audience that's very typical of much online speech. So our social media posts are fairly often characterized by genuine uncertainty about who we are speaking to. Our tweets, for example, could be you know, read by a handful of one's followers or perhaps thousands of strangers who you interact with that one time ever. <laughs> for most users, it's just really unknown exactly who you're talking to when you hit send. And in some cases, you can be drastically wrong about who your audience ends up being. Uh, you, know, you might say something just to your small group of friends, but maybe it really catches fire and becomes something that galvanizes a larger movement. 
that this can occur at all, in my opinion, demonstrates in some ways how our speech acts online are not entirely within our control. When we speak online, in uh, our, our goals, our own goals can be outstripped by those of the medium. And the communities that we kind of find ourselves a part of, they may play, to, play a greater role in determining what we did, what we meant with our words, than our own intentions. We kind of have to just sometimes go with the flow. All right, wrap up these ideas. I just want to note that there's a classic article on this topic where John Soler noted that these different features of online speech create what he called the online disinhibition, disinhibition effect. And he noted simply that people acted differently online than offline. He was very careful there to note that this is uh, can be both benign and toxic, um, and more importantly, that it wasn't meant to suggest that one somehow someone was more real, more disinhibited online, just simply that there are these differences. And similarly, I don't mean to say that these features of online speech that I've been talking about, how they constrain, um, I don't mean to suggest that they make online speech less genuine than offline speech, less authentic. But the point here is simply to remind you of these differences as they point towards some fairly noteworthy architectural differences that scaffold our communicative acts in different ways. They shape our actions, and that matters for what possible moves we can make in our lives online. And that again, uh, put that in your mind as we move forward with uh, these observations of protests, observations of online speech. I want to put all this together and now ask, what does all this mean for protest and uh, social movements? At a minimum, we can note that social media offers at least a new way for social movements to get attention and get their concerns out. And so if protest was kind of simply just about getting attention and communicating some information, that'd be it. But as I stressed earlier, this is not everything that protest aims to do, nor is as an act. And so in addition to offering kind of new opportunities, online communications off offer new constraints. And these constraints shape these actions in both expanding and kind of contracting ways. And this has great impact on uh, how social movements can kind of operate in online spaces. And for this last section, I'll be drawing on uh, kind of three recent books that each in different ways examine the situation on the ground for social movements that to greater and lesser degrees and for better or for worse, use social media for a lot of their organizing and mobilization. These are Zainab Tefexi's Twitter and Tear Gas, uh, Canadian Nora Loretto's Take Back the Fight, and Jillian York's Silicon Values. Each in different ways highlights kind of the challenges, uh, the difficulties, the problems and roadblocks that online social movement organizing faces. And uh, perhaps in particular, I'll focus on Tefexi's work, um, but each offers a very interesting take on what, it, you know, with a lot of interviews of people doing the work about what uh, opportunities presented themselves and what problems really emerged. So, I do recommend all these books to those interested. But in particular, focusing on Tufexi, who offers uh, what she calls a capacities and signals approach to social movements. This, she says, allows uh, shifting the analysis from outcomes and indicators like protest size, numbers of rallies, to talk about the underlying capacities, capabilities of protests, in order to better understand what she calls the dialectic and co-evolving landscape of threat, leverage, and challenge between social movements and the powerful. So looking at protests and other acts of social movements as signals of these underlying capabilities helps us examine how digital technologies can both empower movements and increase their cap capabilities, but also importantly, as she notes, complicate social dynamics, introduce new ones, and even fuel new fragilities. So the capacities that uh, Tufexi has in mind here are 
narrative capacity, electoral capacity, and disruptive capacity. <clears throat> um, these capacities, she says, represent the strengths of social movements to both to, or sorry, to set the narrative, to affect electoral or institutional change, and just to disrupt the status quo. And an important thing to note about these capacities is that they are not fixed, but rather emerge sort of in the interaction between movements and the powerful. That is, um, the powerful strive to interpret and respond to the signals put forward by these movements, in part because they want to assess the capabilities uh, of these movements in order to know whether they ought to respond at all. So digging into each of these very briefly. Uh, narrative capacity is a movement's capacity to get attention and to appeal to its own terms in order to uh, have the public address its grievances. Questions like, is the movement able to uh, make people aware of the issues? Or does mass media represent or not the movement as important or unimportant, trivial and frivolous, stuff like that. Narrative capacity is uh, the movement's ability to articulate their voice, get it heard, and have it responded to as legitimate. And of course, um, online platforms kind of affect that narrative capacity in significant ways. And perhaps once one of the capacities that is greatly strengthened by the distributed and democratized nature of network communication platforms. Electoral capacity, on their hand, is a movement's ability to credibly threaten politicians and policymakers with something like unsuccessful electoral outcomes whether by preventing them from becoming candidates through primary challenges, causing them to lose elections, um, making re-election less possible, or just not uh, coming out to vote, stuff like that. Electoral capacity is partly about signaling the number of voters who are mobilized and ready to act electorically. And one way in which um, social media changes the nature of the signal electoral capacity is its distributed nature. It's not located simply confined to a single geographic area, but rather can be kind of a global phenomenon. This again brings with it strengths and weaknesses. It's uh, perhaps something you can ignore as, um, as sometimes people, politicians do as uh, out of state, out of country, foreign agitators. That threat only makes sense in the context of um, online protests. <clears throat> Disruptive capacity is uh, finally a movement's ability to interrupt business as usual with the aim of things like getting attention, making their point, making it mostly untenable for those in power to continue uh, with the status quo. And it's one aspect of disruptive capacity is the ability to sustain this disruption over time. So this, as Tefexi notes, disruptive capacity is both powerful but carries the highest risk of backlash, which is probably something you have uh, examples in mind. Disruptive capacity, she says, properly interpreted, also includes the ability to bear the costs of either the backlash or the consequences that could be doled out by authorities um, and the abilities. And this is part of the underlying abilities that uh, a social movement aims to signal. Their ability to kind of bear these costs uh, as part of their, their strengths that must be taken into account of. And this, uh, that in mind, that kind of brings me to the broader point around talking about social movements in terms of these capacities, mainly in terms of how social movements need to signal and develop these capacities in different ways, online and off. As Tedexi puts it, these capacities are like muscles that need to be developed. 
And digital technologies, she says, offer shortcuts, which can be useful for getting to a goal, but might bypass some of the development that is uh, crucial for kind of carrying forward to that next step. It can be difficult, uh, but not impossible, to kind of develop one set of muscles, one set of muscles without also developing those that kind of work in support and coordination of it. But digital technologies can kind of sever this link and they allow kind of social movements to kind of accelerate in one way without also building up the underlying other features. She kind of has the metaphor of a bodybuilder who's got massive pecs, but no biceps or deltoids to speak of. And again, this matters because, as we said before, it's partly important for those in power who are confronted by social movements to kind of be always assessing a protester uh, group's underlying capacities. This assessment really does shape whether and how they choose to respond. And in contrast to the past, this is kind of the heart of Tefexi's book, when movements uh, built up these capacities over time and only then could stage large protests, that is, they had to do a whole lot of underlying organization in order to then mobilize people. She says that today's movements are initially organized mostly online, and they generally start uh, the hard work of building up this kind of long-term movement organization after they've kind of had a big moment of public attention. And that is exactly kind of like the challenge that uh, both the strengths and weakness of online organization put forward. She talks about this in terms of uh, what she calls network internalities. So what she says is, is underlying the tasks that were required for organization, logistics, coordination. These take time, but they had the benefit of creating these network internalities. These are the benefits of collective capabilities that are attained from forming durable networks, which can um, you know, take place and occur regardless of what specific challenges you're addressing, but rather just importantly are part of what happens when uh, a collective comes together to do the work of collective decision-making, which involves building trust, delegation, kind of creating an organization in a semi-durable way that forces uh, people to kind of interact together over time. These network internalities, they don't merely derive from the existence of a network, she says, because if that were the case, digital technologies uh, would basically easily afford that, but rather they kind of arrive from the constant work of negotiation interaction, the interaction that's required to maintain these networks, not just the existence of the network itself. This functioning of a durable social political structure is in some ways the, kind of the underlying strength that enables social movements to kind of carry forward through time. But technology, um, can help movements coordinate and organize, but if they do so in a way that doesn't also maintain the corresponding internal network internalities, if they are neglecting rather, then technology can lead to movements that scale up while missing kind of essential pillars of support. They again can kind of really get one, one message out, but can't kind of do the work of delegating to kind of offer solutions to problems. We can see this when we look back at some of the features of online speech articulated above. So features like anonymity and pseudonymity, the ability to broadcast images or even live video without much oversight, and perhaps most importantly, again, the algorithmic uh, amplification and mediation of social platforms, these all accelerate the rise and increase the reach of some nascent social movements, but they can do so in a way that have costs as well as benefits. They can, again, strengthen some muscles while neglecting others.
So let's take amplification and moderation, for example. Just there's little doubt that platforms like Facebook and Twitter, in some cases, have helped the rise of social movements like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, at least in some stages. And it's partly because, given these platforms' desire to just serve up engaging and sometimes enraging content, which would keep users online, that the kind of organic growth of a hashtag or piece of viral content can be amplified fairly exponentially when the incentives of a platform, um, just again, keep some eyeballs looking, can align with the aims of a social movement. But unfortunately, it's really all just a black box and it's run at the whims of these private businesses that do not really operate <coughs> according to uh, coherent principles or even a coherent understanding of their own terms of services. So account suspensions, which have happened to many activists, uh, changes up to what content gets prioritized in user feeds. Um, again, one, one week, these messages are doing real numbers, and the next week, because of a change to underlying uh, architecture of, say, Facebook, uh, they can be kind of reach no one. Really, that and so much more can all have devastating effects to a movement that uh, when they do not go your way. And this can be very frustrating because it follows a period where the platform enabled the miraculous growth of a movement. This happened to, you know, one great example of this is kind of in some uh, circles where Facebook decided to change their algorithm to prioritize uh, personal connections rather than news organizations. And a variety of people who kind of got involved in promoting kind of local news organizations all of a sudden saw their engagement plummet. And it really just is something as I said before is a black box and at the whims of the business. As I said before, also things like account suspensions are the sort of thing that can befall people for seemingly incoherent reasons. And again, that's all just kind of part of the pitfalls of online spaces. And when we are put ourselves at the mercy of those decisions, which are again fairly unaccountable. And another challenge before here concerns um, community building while organizing online. So this is made difficult, not only by the fact that much online speech is asynchronous and embodied differently, which again, can afford, could change how we interact, but also because of those things like anonymity and pseudonymity, which while again, not making it impossible to build community, uh, do raise some challenges. Perhaps the biggest concern is the ability to uh, build these network internalities like trust amongst organizers and activists when these sort of non-identifiable speakers can <laughs> kind of present the specter of informants, rats, spies, or the accusation uh, just thereof, which can have the real bite. Again, especially when you kind of look towards the global practice of social movements rather than just in North America, but it does happen here as well. Rising movements have been taken down by government agents infiltrating online spaces. And knowing this can happen is can be one significant source of infighting among activists that erodes trust. There was just a story the other week about uh, police officers in Minnesota that infiltrated a lot of online spaces in order to kind of surveil activists and ultimately undermine the group. So it's again a real concern. And <clears throat> the skepticism that this kind of pseudonymity or anonymity can invite among organizers, organizers parallels a challenge for also signaling strength and commitment to those in power when you have what can be kind of considered a pseudonymous protest rather than an identifiable one. So accusations, kind of mentioned earlier, 
that a protest can be insincere or astroturfed or fake in other ways, when this can be wielded uh, by those in power, that can have fairly significant effect. So in contrast to the functions that Anderson described earlier, it can be hard to present yourself as unified, as numerous, as sincere, with legitimate authority to address the powerful when they can and often do accuse you of being a swarm of Russian bots, for example. And there's not much that you can do sometimes to change their mind. That is, again, I'm just saying, one of the genuine challenges we need to uh, take stock of here. And while these are real challenges, it should also be noted that social media can itself uh, play a different role in strengthening these internal capabilities. So a sense of camaraderie and community is possible online. Um, this is one kind of thing, one topic that really got me into this topic is the way that something like a hashtag really can create a sense of belonging. And other features of online speech can themselves really take an otherwise decentralized, geographically dispersed group of people and give them some cohesiveness. So coordination around things like hashtags or digital disruptions, um, focusing on particular targets, much, much more, they really can contribute to the building and spreading of the collective identity that is essential to building a type of authority that can back up something like protest, at least in the sense that I've been articulating it. So community both flourishes online, as likely some of you know, and it can flounder online. And so it really is just kind of noting the differences, the different mechanisms at play there that forces us to rethink in terms of well, what type of community, what type of um, collective identity is required to back up kind of the assertions, the complaints, the demands that make protest something worth taking seriously. Um, next and finally, I wanna talk about the double-edged sword that is um, leader, the problem of kind of the challenges around leadership and social movement organizing online. This is something, again, that can both be strengthened and weakened in online protests. So like similarly to the challenges around community, uh, the general problems around leadership and social movements is not new, but the specific affordances encouraged by the mechanisms of online speech do have significant and kind of novel impacts that must be taken stock of and now must be kind of things that social movements kind of strategize around. So Tifaxi puts it this way, saying that collective action has always required a delicate balance between empowering the individual and expressing the will of a group. And digital technologies can amplify this tension. Sometimes, as we just said, a great unity and collective identity can emerge as people coalesce around things like hashtags. But network movements also have few means of dealing with the internal conflicts and tensions that political action can uh, inevitably bring forward, as well as the kind of further problem of the, which she calls the natural jockeying for status and attention that kind of emerges in both uh, social movement politics and especially in <laughs> online communication. She says, we can ask who speaks for the movement as a whole when members can speak through their individual social media contacts, but there's no kind of mechanisms for kind of closure decision-making to kind of make these the final uh, mark of who actually speaks for this group as a whole. Nora Loretto in her work also addresses this tension and makes a similar point, partly about how the appointment and self-appointment of leadership in online movements is an interesting novel problem, because unlike unions and other organizations of the past, there really is no democratic process that kind of elects these leaders uh, in these more dispersed movements, the ones that flourish online. 
this again can lead to less accountability and less ability for collective decision making. And unlike the previous movements that had these kind of internal hierarchies and structures, the skills that make one an effective leader in an online protest movement are very different and more aligned with the demands of online platforms themselves than the demands of the movement. So this, when combined with the informal nature of leadership in leaderless movements, gives powerful actors like governments sometimes the ability to select which groups and which leaders they'll engage with. So as Loretto puts it, uh, the fact that in some cases power gets to decide who to appoint as a leader or spokesperson for a dispersed movement can itself lead to the kind of um, prioritization of one form of protest, namely awareness raising, as a type of dominant force of you know, the one act that gets kind of prioritized and it makes it disconnected from other um, acts of the a group. As she puts it, digital organizing was critical to the neoliberal transformation of political action. And by this, she means that in part, that the awareness raising side of movements, while important, has been privileged by people in power as being the most important. And moving beyond awareness raising then became a significant challenge of online protest and one that uh, is a big hurdle that is, you know, they still struggle to overcome. So while struggles around leadership and worries about being co-opted again are not new to more movement organizing, I mean, it existed long before the internet, nonetheless, we can ask, you know, what capacities are being built, which are incentivized, and how do these relate to the signals picked up by um, those that protest aim to challenge? And it's the particularities around online speech, what skills it requires, how it presents uh, an individual and a movement, along with things like the randomness of algorithmic amplification that are things that are new challenges for online movement building. And the capacity to respond and adapt to these challenges is um, one that kind of plays a big role in what, get attention, what gets attention and what does not. So and in sum, uh, while protest aims to generate political action, the scope of actions available and kind of encouraged in online spaces is different, sometimes more limited, and this can have itself an impact on political motivation about who engaged in protests, what kind of protests flourish, and where this kind of takes us in terms of further actions. Uh, there's much more I could say about, uh, and really should say about the challenges of online protests, particularly around issues like censorship, manipulation of attention, the threat of backlash from the state, as well as counter movements. But really, the topic is too big, and I uh, can only do so much. Um, what I want to briefly now end on uh, talking is a, more, a, few, a few more comments about how online protests challenges us to think differently about what protest is and can be. So I said earlier that the embodied public nature of protest plays a key role in um, backing it up with a distinct type of authority. And this is in contrast to the kind of pseudonymity or anonymity or dispersed nature that is encouraged and possible online. Because one way of understanding this would be to say that, you know, identifiable speakers are the appropriate subjects of protest, perhaps because this sort of identification um, in public makes for the sort of risky, more high cost speech that is a reliable signal of commitment and maybe legitimacy and stuff like that, that is important both for um, power to identify, but also for the community to kind of be encouraged to motivated to keep up with their the, the, the protests themselves. It plays a role internally. Part of the idea here would be that putting your kind of body on the line in some form 
helps lead to authentic protest. And I think, while I think there's something to this, there's a few, again, concerns I wanna end on or different thoughts to end on rather. So it could be noted that in some cases, it's unclear whether online or off offline protest is riskier. While tweeting a hashtag you know, can connect a person uh, more directly and more traceably by say the authorities than showing up in public sometimes. This makes a big difference around the globe where there's different uh, levels of state surveillance basically. So in the one case, while offline protest kind of risks, you know, getting roughed up and tear gas and arrests and stuff like that, online protests can also risk surveillance. And this surveillance can be very invasive and very impactful and uh, making online protests far from low cost at all. This is one thing that comes out of the kind of the more global nature of the stu study that uh, Tufexi and Jillian York talk about when they address how movements have used these technologies in, say, North Africa and the Middle East and whatnot. Uh, the risk of state surveillance really does make it the case that online protest is the type of risky act that one um, has to be committed about to do. So it kind of pushes back against some of those earlier ideas around um, the, the ability to dismiss online protest surveys. And just like how using a hashtag, liking, retweeting, tagging, these are all novel communicative acts in certain ways that don't necessarily have clear parallels in online life. I want to just close by considering the possibility that online protest is also kind of qualitatively different than IRL protest. So while they both back up their claims with a type of community authority, perhaps each speech act builds its authority in very different ways. One via the physical presence of many speakers and the other via things like repetition, hashtags, iterations on memes and so on. If, you, if you're an online person, you've surely recognized how quickly online communities can be created, can galvanize, and can spread uh, a clear and kind of dominant interpretation of an issue. And while attention can wax and wane in these online spaces, that's perhaps just a sign of kind of the multiple overlapping problems that are worthy of address. And while online protests may appear, and from one angle, fleeting, it perhaps, um, less fleeting than it looks like and more just multifaceted in aiming at to address numerous problems that each require kind of in-depth analysis that doesn't necessarily have to occur in that moment, but rather takes more um, a broader impact on one's life in general. So I think it, what I'm sort of suggesting here in closing is that online protests can signal fairly widespread dissatisfaction with uh, the status quo. And this signal is one that powerful actors in general ought to take seriously. They risk, in other words, dismissing online protests as being incapable of providing a strong enough anchor to group uh, people into kind of collective authority. They, they risk that at their own peril because there is clearly in many instances, as we all know, both on the right and the left, um, clear cases where online protest has uh, sustained and brought people together to force um, changes that do involve that community authority that I take so seriously. And it's just on this ending note where I suggest that perhaps looking for the parallels is itself a mistake and rather we should see how the similar function could be formed in very different ways. And that in many ways should encourage us to rethink what uh, protest is and what it's for and what it can look like. Um, all right, I will end there and say thank you for your time and, and with a picture of my cats, which I always do to show my appreciation.